sermon this morning. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and touch on chapter 9. But I want to begin this morning by talking about the church. You know, we use the word church in different ways today. We often use it in relation to a building. We say, I'm going to church. But a building is not the church. As we all know here, we are the church. We are God's temple. Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. We know those things. The word actually in the New Testament is ecclesia. And it means to be called out, to be called out of the world for God's purposes. And of course, it's made up of the elect, chosen before the foundation of the world. And the world in the word, excuse me, in English means assembly or congregation. And it is used in a universal sense in Scripture, referring to all believers from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But almost always, when you find the word ecclesia in the New Testament, it's referring to a local body, a local assembly of those called out. And each of these assemblies is to function as the body of Christ, to do the work of the ministry for the glory of the Redeemer. And the church, the ecclesia, is described different ways. It's the body of Christ, as we've already mentioned. Christ is the head. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. It's the household or family of God, and God is the Father. It's the temple of God, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. It's also the kingdom of God. Christ is our king. The local church is an organization. But it's much, much more than that. It's actually, in, it's already been implied by some of the terms that we've used, but it's a living organism that's given life by the Spirit of God. We are His living body, and we obey and serve the head. We are His bride that submits and serves and honors the groom. We are the family of God that lovingly obeys the Heavenly Father. We are the temple of God, the place, the people in which God dwells in this world. We are the kingdom of God, and we're much more than the king's subjects. We are the children of the king who lovingly worship the king. Did you get that? We are his worshipers. We've been called out of the world into a relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The church is God's plan. It's been God's plan from the very beginning to call out a people for his namesake. Biblically, there's no other organism through which God is glorified, God's people are sanctified, and the gospel is to go forth. This is not to condemn parachurch organizations, but these organizations should be ministries of either a church or a group of churches. They are not to be autonomous entities. You see, our function in the body 
in the ecclesia is directly connected to our relationship to the head. For the church to function, there must be unity in the body. Submission to the elders as they submit to the head. A desire to grow spiritually, but even numerically, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. To function, there must be love for Christ and therefore love for his body, faithfully serving and sacrificing and working. There must be worship of the king. For the church to function, we must faithfully and sacrificially support God's plan. Ecclesia is God's plan. That is his, that is the heart of God, is the church. He gave himself for it to redeem us out of the world for his own glory, not for ours, but for his own glory. And this includes faithfully giving. That's a biblical pattern. Can I suggest this morning that giving is an act of worship? If it's not, there's no point. Even Old Covenant tithing was an act of worship. Giving apart from worship is service in futility. Giving should be a response to God, to who he is and what he has done. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, David shares a psalm of Asaph to thank the Lord for who he is and all that he had done for the Hebrew people. And in the midst of that psalm, verse 29, it says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship Yahweh in holy array. Giving is an act of worship. Even under a legal system of the, of the old covenant, it was to be an act of worship. It wasn't always the case, but that was God's intent. As you read through the scriptures that relate to giving offerings, it becomes evident. Giving back to God finds no favor with him. It's not like it's some kind of sacrament. It doesn't gain God's love or God's favor. Rather, we should give in response to God's greatness and his goodness. It's indeed an act of worship and expresses love for our creator and our redeemer. For those of us in the new covenant promise, it's also a response to his greatness and his goodness. In the old covenant, they look forward. Get this. They look forward to a time that the saving Messiah would come. To a day that God would write his law on people's hearts, making them hearts of flesh. To an intimate relationship where God promises, I will be their God and they will be my people. Think about that. The intimate relationship that God promised in the new covenant. We are those today of the new covenant promise. God has taken hearts of stone that were unable to keep his laws 
and given us living hearts, hearts of flesh that desire to worship and serve God. In the old covenant, they gave them, excuse me, God gave them a law concerning giving. They were to give 10%. It was actually greater than that on many respect, in many respects. Sometimes it was as high as 37, 38%. But today God has given us new hearts, hearts that are to be thankful, that desire to give back to God. Giving should be one of our greatest joys because it is indeed an act of worship for who God is and what he has done. One of the most encompassing New Testament passages on giving is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, where Paul teaches the Corinthian believers about grace giving. We don't have time this morning to exegete these two chapters, but we need to look at several verses that are applicable for us here today. It's the right time to look at this text. Let's begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Listen to what Paul writes. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of, our, of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The Roman province of Macedonia was located in what today is northern Greece. And it had three churches in Paul's day, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. These are the churches that Paul is referring to. We wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So here in chapter 8, verse 1, the Apostle Paul is sharing about the example of the Macedonian churches. And he refers to their example in giving Basically, we, he says the grace of God. It's grace giving. Giving is an expression of a grateful heart, a heart that has been regenerated by God. Dr. John MacArthur writes, their giving was not motivated primarily by philanthropy or human kindness, but by the grace of God at work in their hearts. One of the, effect, excuse me, one of the effects of saving, transforming, Sanctifying grace is longing to give generously and sacrificially to those in need, especially other believers. It's the grace of God in our lives by the power of the Spirit working in us that causes us to respond to the body of Christ, to ecclesia with grace. Giving is an act of worship because God has been so gracious to us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. That word lavished means to superabound, to be in excess. It's also defined as enough and to spare. God's grace is enough and to spare. 
If you're in Christ this morning, it doesn't matter what sin you've ever committed. God's grace in Christ is enough and to spare. That's the love with which he has loved us. We are undeserving. We could never, ever earn his grace. But God in his great mercy has poured his grace upon us. He's lavished it upon you and I. All oh, that we would get a grasp this morning of his grace. It makes all the difference in the world. When we fully grasp what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, realizing that I've been bought with a price and everything I have is God's, it should make giving a joy. See, you cannot separate responsibility from relationship. Because apart from relationship with our Creator, with our Redeemer, doing means nothing. It's only because of relationship with Him. It's because of His grace that we want to give back to Him. And we want to serve Him. And we want to worship Him. It's all because of Him. He has lovingly entrusted us with resources. His word teaches us that we're to be good stewards. I should be faithful with everything that he's given me, including money. What I do with my treasures reveals my heart. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No exceptions. Where I invest my resources reveals where my heart is. Where I spend my resources, even my time, reveals where my heart is. Notice as we continue, Macedonia was a poor area. As Paul alludes to in verse 2 that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, and in their deep poverty, overflowed in wealth of their liberality. So they were joyous in spite of affliction, and they gave liberally in spite of deep poverty. These were not wealthy people. These were people that were suffering. They had deep poverty, not just poor, but deep poverty. But they did not allow their poverty to prevent them from giving liberally. They gave anyway. Verse 3 and 4. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So in verse 3, they gave according to their ability, but even beyond their ability. That's how it's defined, the giving that they participated in. So we see an example of sacrificial giving out of poor circumstance. Remember in Mark 12, the woman that gave two copper coins 
not silver, not gold, two copper coins. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. She gave it. That's giving out of poverty. We don't have to be wealthy to give. We need to be faithful to give. Second Corinthians 8.3, as we continue again, they gave of their own accord. In other words, it was self-chosen. It wasn't something they were manipulated to do or forced to do. It came from their own desire, according to their own accord. And then in verse 4, the Macedonians actually begged Paul to allow them to participate in supporting the saints. This was from their hearts. This is what they wanted to do. Notice verse 5. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They first gave themselves. The word first is protos. And it's not referring to the first time. It's not referring back to salvation, of giving themselves as an expression of their faith. But it's first priority. That's the Greek word. The Macedonians' first priority was to give themselves to the Lord wholeheartedly. Financial giving naturally follows giving of oneself. Remember what Paul wrote to the Roman believers after 11 chapters of proclaiming God's grace and mercy in chapter 12, that point in the book of Romans where he turns from doctrine to duty, from God's grace to human responsibility. Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The supreme act of worship is giving oneself. It's not attending church. It's not singing hymns. It's not giving money or time or resources. It's giving of oneself. Again, Dr. John MacArthur writes, as a holy priesthood, believers are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus, the most important of which is themselves. Only when it is from a devout life, given holy or given to Christ holy, does financial giving become an acceptable act of worship. Well said. So how are we today, under the new covenant promise, how are we to give? We've already seen that the Macedonians gave beyond their ability. Paul refers to this basically as grace giving in 8.1. In 2 Corinthians 8.7, Paul continues and he admonishes 
the Corinthians to give as the Macedonians had given. He had given them, the Macedonians, those three churches, as an example of how the Corinthians were to give. And so in verse 7, he writes, But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. The context is giving. This gracious work was giving, giving. And then verse 8, Paul says this as he continues the thought. I am not speaking this as a command, but it's proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Paul says, I'm not giving you a command. I'm not giving you a law. He's not putting them back under the Old Testament law of 10% of a tithe. Paul admonishes the Corinthians to prove themselves, prove the sincerity of their love. He's referring to an act of worship, the sincerity of your love. You see, we love him because he first loved us. And we love his body, the church, because it is the body of Christ. Giving is an act of worship and love. New covenant giving is indeed grace giving. That's the model for the church. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 8. A little later on in this exposition. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God does not promise to make you healthy and wealthy. If you give to the Lord, that's not what the scripture says, but he does promise that we will reap sparingly. But for what purpose? Not so we can be wealthy, but verse eight gives us the answer so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. If we're faithful in giving. God will bless us and provide so that we can continue to give. The blessing is God providing an abundance so that we can continue to help in good deeds, not so that we can accumulate wealth for ourselves. When our motive becomes self-serving, we're missing the point. Notice verse 7 again. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We, have get, we are to give as we have purposed or predetermined in our hearts. We need the Lord's leading in determining what we should give. And that should come by prayer and meditation on God's grace. The more we understand and give a hope of God's grace that's in Christ Jesus, 
the more we'll have a heart to give. But we can say this. If we look at the context and study what had happened, they had made a commitment, but not had the opportunity to follow through on it. So we can say this, but once we commit to God to give, we should be faithful. Notice our giving must be voluntary. It says not grudgingly. It means, the word means sorrow, grief, or pain. So it's not giving in a way to cause pain. It's not to give and then be sorry for giving. It's not to cause remorse, regretting what we've given. We need to give from our hearts, not under compulsion. Again, not a legalistic standard. I cannot tell you biblically, you cannot show me a place in the epistles, in under the new covenant, in which they're commanded to give a tithe. That's where they're actually commanded very differently, as we're seeing here. People have asked, I've had people ask me, where should I start? And I have to admit, I don't think 10% is a bad place to start. But we're not required. There's no law that says 10% for us believers today. We are to give from our hearts not under compulsion. It's not because we have to. It should be because we want to. I cannot give you a percentage. God does not give you a percentage. But for me personally, I often think if they were required to give a tithe under the old covenant, I know my heart should be to give everything under the new. And that's how I look at it. Notice God loves a cheerful giver as we continue in verse, I think it was verse 7. That word chariot, cheerful, excuse me, I'm getting the next word mixed into it, is hilarious. And yes, it's from the word, it's the word, Greek word from which we get our new, our English word, hilarious. That's how we're to, we're to give hilariously. It means merry, joyous, willing, prompt to do anything. That's the idea. God loves it when we're willing to give, when we're prompt to do any. Whenever a need arises, we want to give. We want to give back to God. That's the attitude that we should have. Willing to give as God has blessed me. That's it. And we should be faithful in small opportunities so God will entrust us with large ones. That's what I want. Jesus said in Luke 6, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over for by what standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. And I'm not promising. The word of God doesn't promise he's going to make you wealthy. Sometimes the blessings are spiritual in nature. But I do, we've already seen a principle. I do believe that when we're faithful, God will bless us so we can continue to be faithful for every good deed. And that's important. It's not in this text, but... Jesus also taught that we should not give for show. 
for the benefit of others, to make ourselves look good. Matthew 6 also, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their full reward. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. 19th century American preacher Henry Ward Beecher said this, and I like this, Do not give as rich men do, like a hen that lays her eggs and then cackles. It's a good reminder. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul gives the example that brings giving into proper perspective. And here's the example. He used the Macedonians, but now he points to Christ. Chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's not talking about material wealth. It's talking about spiritual wealth. Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, brings more clarity to this very concept. When Paul writes, He, God, made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Folks, Jesus Christ gave. He emptied Himself, as we'll read in our benediction. He emptied himself in Philippians chapter 2, not of his deity, but he emptied himself of his majesty, his reputation, his glory, and took on human flesh, became a slave and took on human flesh, lived a perfectly holy life, and went to the cross and bore our sins. That's the wealth that we want, the wealth that Christ gave us, for we don't have any spiritual wealth of our own. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, are you righteous in the eyes of God? If we do not have his righteousness, we have no righteousness. We might appear righteous before men, but before God, we are undone. We are sinful. We are like filthy rags. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. But God in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, sent his son who left the glories of heaven who became poor for our sakes. God that created, took on human flesh, and he had no place to lay his head. He didn't have a house, didn't have a nice home. He sacrificed. He gave up. He emptied himself. The kenosis passage in Philippians. He emptied himself 
that we might become rich. There are no words to be able to communicate what God has done for us. God has spoken, yes. But it's only by the power of the Spirit that we can understand what He has done. He became poor, became poor, that we might be rich. So in conclusion, the church is God's plan for today. He's calling out a people for His namesake. He has no other plan, no plan B. God's ecclesia is it. And our commitment to his church demonstrates our love for our Savior. May we love him because he first loved us. This church is his body. We are his bride. We are his family. We are the building in which Christ is the cornerstone and the building in which the Spirit of God lives. We are God's kingdom. We cannot separate the church from its head. It's one organism. Therefore, the love for the church shows our love for the Savior. Our faithfulness to the church shows our faithfulness to God. My giving to the church is literally giving to God. The church, the ecclesia, is God's plan. Don't miss it. This is God's organism. His organization and organism for His work here on this earth. And God has chosen us that we would be a part of that glorious temple. Giving is an act of worship. It's grace giving. It's not a law. I can't tell you a law. No man can do that. No man can give you a percentage and say, you've got to do this. But all oh, that we would give back to God with all our hearts as God enables us to give. Even in our poverty, we should seek to give liberally. Just like the Macedonians that gave beyond their ability. We are to choose what to give and be faithful. Predetermine it and be faithful. Faithful giving of our resources, as we've already seen, begins with giving of ourselves. So does God have all of me. What benefit is there if we give financially? If we are not totally surrendered to God's sovereign will in our lives, there is not. God has promised to bless us when we're faithful so that we can bless others. We're to give as we purposed in our hearts, not grudgingly, leading to regret. Not by a legalistic standard, but hilariously. For God loves 
a hilarious giver. And we're never to give for show. But we're to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ that gave up the glories of heaven to come to this earth to be our Redeemer. That's the example of giving. So I don't come to you this morning with some kind of a legalistic standard. I come to you this morning with God in all his glory, realizing the blessing, the worship it is to give back to him everything we have as God's. Everything. May we be good stewards of what he has given us.